Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And we are, oh, I am Parker Dillman. <laughs> and this is episode 170. Yes. So what are we, Parker? <laughs> the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what I said, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Parker, feed me. What's new? What's cool? Okay, so the, the Wagon Tack Project. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Um, and I kind of had something kind of prototyped working, kind of like just cobbled together on my bench. And so I started, uh, I, I 3D printed the housing for it. So I made like a little plastic housing. Let me go grab it. So does this, uh, this housing, is it is it like something that's on top of uh, your dash or does it actually fit into the dash? So I'm, so my dash is like the old school style dashes are just like, think about like a pillar that goes all the way across. And so... Mm-hmm underneath there's quite a bit of space where your feet would go yeah and in the center there's you know space there and so it's designed to be mounted under slung Mm. and then like has a 45 degree angle little ledge there that will bolt up to under the dash oh okay i see yeah you you printed uh you printed some holes in there yeah Yeah. i I guess you don't print holes but (laughs) you have some holes that can be used as mounting you print around holes right So so it's a it's a VFD that has like a bar graph base or a horizontal bar graph, right? Yes, yeah. I, I think there's like a little video I took last time and, and uploaded it. Um, and so it displays, you know, the RPM and the numbers, and then there's a bar that goes up to like I think five thousand is what I have the bar graph cap out at. So like you actually have like a kind of like a tack needle, so to speak, but it's a it's a bar graph. Sure. So uh, wait, does the Jeep not already have a tack? The Wagoneer does not have a tack. Oh, okay. Is that just common across all Wagoneers? Uh, yes. Yeah, they just never really had tachometers in them. Okay. Very cool. Are, are you going to put the uh, files up on, on you GitHub? Don't need a, you don't need to worry about how fast your engine is spinning when you're in luxury. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. But uh, yeah, are you going to put the files up uh, such that people can take a look at them? Yeah, I'll put them. I don't know why anyone would want to replicate this project, but technically, you can actually put this tack on any. It would be for any car that you're working on that has a GM style uh, high energy distributor setup because it just has a tack signal that comes off and you just feed it into the circuit board and voila. And so I'll post up um, the schematic and stuff and, you know, the code for the Arduino that's on there. Yeah, so you said people wouldn't have a, a need or a want for it. I actually like I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a little bit of a story here, just a quick one. I actually took a class in college where we had to pick a semester long project, and you could pick one of three projects, and one of them was to build a tack for your car. Um, I did not pick that one, but uh, the project that had a requirement that you had to have some kind of a system that had a microphone that would listen to your your engine and then ah. it would do some DSP and determine the RPM based off of your car. Uh, so, I, you know, your, your project wouldn't necessarily fit that exactly, but the bar graph would have made that project really cool. Yes. Yeah, so... Well, that's cool. I, I thought about doing like a microphonic style setup for it, but... Um Given that my engine makes a lot of weird noises, it probably wouldn't work too well. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, I, so I 3D printed the housing. 
the next step I need to do is run the wire from the distributor all the way into the cab. Just haven't ran that wire yet. I don't. I've like I've already redone the wiring harness on the uh, engine a couple times already, so I'm not really looking forward to cutting it open, putting a new wire in, and that sounds like a giant pain. Yeah, it is a little bit because it's like you're running only 12 feet of wire, and it takes like an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, okay, and um, it was like 50 volts coming off of the the cap, right? Mm-hmm. So you had some form of a uh, of a voltage divider or something like that. Yeah, so what I ended up using was kind of like a hybrid of all the circuits I found online mm-hmm. that kind of knock um, that, that signal down. Because some people just use resistor dividers. Some have like fancy um, converter circuits and stuff. Um, I just used a... I, I had an in-series diode mm-hmm. to basically prevent negative flyback volt. I think it's flyback voltage because what's happening is the voltage ramps up and then the field collapses oh, as yeah, the spark yeah, yeah. happens. Yeah. And that can, can create a, a negative voltage. And you don't really want a negative voltage into your circuit because your Arduino won't be too happy about that. Right. Um, and then that feeds into a resistor divider. And then on the output of the resistor divider, I have a Zener diode to clamp it to 4.7 volts. Mm-hmm. And that's just in case like there's, it sees a higher spike that the resistor divider doesn't knock down the 5. Sure. And then that goes into a Smith trigger opto. And I use part number H11L1M, which is just like a 5-volt you know, Smith trigger opto. And so that kind of cleans up the signal a little bit and... You get a little bit more of a square signal. Yeah, you get a pretty close to a square wave coming out of it. And then that feeds into the Arduino Nano. Got it. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm curious with the Zener diode, why not uh, Why not just have, uh, instead of a resistive divider, why not just have a resistor into the Zener and let the Zener just clamp it? I've tried that. Um, you would need a big Zener diode. And a fast found. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I, I've never seen a, a diode actually glow like an LED, but yeah, that was happening. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. I think if you put enough resistance, that would be fine. But I found that the resistor divider just was a better, more reliable way of doing it. Yeah. Well, the resistor divider is just kind of a, a little bit more of a guarantee that there will be some ratio there, right? Yeah, there is some ratio there, and... That Zener actually has to turn on in order to clamp, right? Yeah. And most of the time, it doesn't... I have it... I had the... At 50 volts, I had the resistor divider to hit, like, 4.5 volts. Okay. And so, so that Zener's probably just barely starting to turn on. Exactly. So I'm, I'm, I was trying to make sure, hey, you know, I only want... I don't want to wear out that Zener diode, because it would wear out eventually, and then mm-hmm. it would, you know blow up the opto eventually <laughs> hmm. you know okay quick quick little tangent on uh, on zener diodes this just came to mind there something that's really annoying about zener diode uh data sheets is uh, you 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 look at a zener diode and they give you gosh what they call it, zener current which from what i've i've experienced is that's the current at which they tested the voltage across the zener and that's great it's nice to know that number but half the time the zener current is like 
200 milliamps through the Zener or, or, you know, it's some huge mm-hmm. number. And you're like, I want my circuit to be like half a milliamp through the Zener. And I understand that like, w- you know, at lower currents, the uh, Zeners are going to respond differently than at higher currents, but don't tell me the test at 200 milliamps. That's way too much. You like, I don't I, like, that's just burning juice that I don't need. Mm-hmm. Like you, you'll have, you'll have like a, I don't know, a nine volt Zener at 200 milliamps. That's a ton of juice going through that thing, you know? So I don't know. That's and then they turn into LEDs for a brief moments. Well, I mean, it's, I've seen some <laughs> some data sheets where they say, okay, so we tested the Zener at one milliamp, at ten milliamp, and at a hundred milliamps, and and give you kind of like a, a an idea of how the current will change whatever voltage drop goes across it because it's not constant, right? It's not exactly the voltage, mm. uh, and so you you get an idea of like, okay, the tolerance of this. Even if I pick it to be a 1% Zener, it's going to be a little bit different at each current level. So then you can actually design it a little bit easier. So, I don't know, a little bit of a gripe. Yeah. Maybe I just don't understand it, and <laughs> there's a reason why it's that way. Uh, well, we do have a topic on better data sheets later, so... <laughs> you know, and, and it's funny, I, I probably brought that tangent up because I saw the topic on our on our little cheat sheet here. Yeah. I guess we'll talk about that later. <laughs> the next, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and get this thing installed probably over the weekend and uh, probably make a video of it working in on the dash. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be pretty cool. Um, and then I was working more on the Pinotaur. Um, I was last week I was talking about looking for IO expanders and I was looking at some microchip ones. The part number is MCP23SO or S08, I should say. And these are the SPY version. They make an I2C version as well, but these are SPY bus ones. And I was looking at all the features, and they, they, these things have tons of features in these, like, chips. For just um, IO You can change the addresses. You can... Um, they, have, they have interrupts. Really? Like interrupt pins. So you can... So that I.O. expander can interrupt with a pin interrupt to your microcontroller. Mm, over SPI? No, no, it's a, a separate I.O. pin. Oh, okay, so it has an interrupt pin that it can throw to, over to your processor. Okay, I thought it was going to kick over and interrupt over SPI, which that could be cool too. Maybe it does, but I, I, don't, I don't see how that would work because that's a slave device. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, if it's just a slave device, then it can't work. Yeah. Um, so I was looking at these, and I'm like, okay, these are really cool, but they're kind of, they're like a buck a piece. And I'm going going over our spec sheets for the Pintor, and I was thinking, why not use just shift registers? <laughs> like 74HC595. Because uh, those are technically serial in parallel out. They're an IO expander. Well, they're they're an output expander. Yeah, they don't have input. They don't have inputs, but they make a parallel to serial converter. It's the 74HC165. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, okay, what is and five nine fives are like ten cents a piece. <laughs> so you have an order of magnitude difference in price. So the difference I was finding out is basically if you need. The I.O. pins to be either change, you know, input to output or you need to you need these interrupt stuff. Yeah, go with the I.O. expander or you need to be over I square C. But if you just are using like to expand how many outputs that your microcontroller can have, Mm -hmm. there's no reason to not use the 74HC 595. 
Yeah, right, right. And the 595, I think you can write at like a screaming speed to that thing. Uh, yeah, so 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 you could you could flip you could flip its outputs really fast. Yeah, so I was looking at the speeds and you can drive most 74HC 595s at around 5 megahertz. Uh, these IO expanders run at 10. So if you need screaming IO pins, yeah, you're going to need to go faster IO expanders. But the I, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure the 595 there's some variants that go faster than that. I was just looking at the HC style. On yeah, TI. Okay. yeah. I think there are some that go past 10. Um, I mean, I've never ha- ever had a need to go that freaking fast. And the 74 HC 595s, I was looking I was looking at the 3.3 volts. Ah, uh, okay, got it. You can quote overclock them by running them at five volts and you can get to like i think like that series is like seven and a half or eight megahertz yeah right yeah gotta go fast yes you gotta collapse those fields <laughs> nice but when are you gonna go with the 595s or are you gonna do microchip i think we're gonna go with 595s right now because we used them on the pin on uh, the pin heck yeah and they worked great for what we were using them for and we're not going to use pinner interrupts we're not going to be using like changing the IO states. We're not going to be using any of that kind of stuff. And so there's not really any point to use an IO expander in our case. Right, right. Well, yeah, you don't need the you don't need all the fancy extra stuff that you pay tons for. Yeah, cuz we're going to we're going to pull our, our IO and output our IO at a consistent rate. Mm-hmm. You know, given our our um kernel cycle on the on the pinotaur so there's no reason to have it interrupt there of being like hey something changed it's like no you gotta wait your turn still because we're gonna be pulling it every so often right yeah and when you start getting into all that extra like off processor stuff then you really you start ramping up your development time you know because you have to do so much extra coding to just make sure everyone's happy and taken care of mm-hmm. that yeah, that's worth factoring into everything that you're doing, you know? At the same time, like, if you're spending an extra dollar for extra pins, why not start looking at processors that just have extra pins, you know? Because, I mean, if you're already willing to potentially do a dollar. I mean, I'm not saying you. I'm just saying any any designer in general. Yeah, there's there's so many. Like, it feels like those IO expander things are kind of like Band-Aid fixes in a way. Unless you're talking about 595, so they're so cheap you can sprinkle them in. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's, it really depends on, you know, actually, we have our listeners, like, if if you could get a microcontroller for X dollars, and then for X plus, and you need more I.O., so you do X plus one, but the next version of that microcontroller is X plus one and has additional I.O., is there any way, any reason why you would go the I.O. expander route? Um, yeah, okay. Well, but with the, with the caveat that both options are the same price, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like it might have to do with board, um, positioning, you know, like routing, uh, might, you might know drive what? you yeah, to that. You know, actually you could do is you can have the IO expander really close to the connector and then right. it's talking over a serial connection to your microcontroller, which could be farther away on the board. And so right. those... IO connector uh, IO can be a lot, you know, low in noise. There, yeah, there's some benefits to that 
maybe also expandability or something. If you had like some part of a circuit that you added to, then you could just slap in the IO expander and then it just becomes a change in firmware as opposed to a board rev. So mm-hmm. I don't know. There's, there's probably a lot of reasons why each version, each option is better than the other. Right. Yeah. So I guess also it depends on what's coming on, you know, what you're doing with the pins and how much extra juice you're going to burn in the processor versus a separate chip somewhere else on the board. Ugh, too much crap to think about, right? And it could be you, you, you know, you also done a lot of software development, and then switching to the higher version might, you know, mess up your. It's not supposed to mess up your development environment, but it could. Oh yeah, no, always expect something to happen. Like you have to change your bootloader or something at that point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We we we've started using the phrase. It's never easy at work. Like every every little thing where we're like, yeah, we got this. This is this is great. And then like something unforeseen shows up and you have to deal with it. And then we just go, it's never easy. A wild errata PDF is shown. <laughs> yeah. It's super effective. <laughs> it's super effective. <laughs> yeah. It uses that feature is broken. It is super effective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did not read footnote. Yep. Oh, <laughs> pick 16s. I, I, we're, we're just stacking up all kinds of stuff for the data sheet talk later. Oh, yes, exactly. Start getting hyped. <laughs> all right, so we so, so so we can get closer to the data sheet topic. Yeah. What have you been working on, Steven? Uh, okay, so I put some more effort into the macro amp. Um, I think the last time I talked about it was I was talking about getting it into the enclosure, but I decided to do some... I guess, bench-level testing before the enclosure just to make sure everything was good because I realized I didn't want to wire it up and then have to unwire it if needed be. But I got I got pretty lucky because I put it on the on the bench and uh, did some, uh, some modifications here and there. I, I think the last time we talked about it, we, I, there were some incorrect resistor values. I ended up just swapping those out and um, just doing some, like, butt solder joints for all the transformers in you know, where you just, like, set them on the pad and solder them, like, real quick kind of thing. So certainly not permanent. And um, brought up the entire amp under wall voltage because the last time or the first time I had tested the my, my board, I did it all with a nice clean power supply. This time I wanted to see, like, okay, so if I have it under transformer power and I'm also dealing with all the extra magnetic crap and stuff, am I going to get, you know, nasty junk on my uh, on my signals and uh it's all working great i i was actually somewhat surprised um in fact one of the resistors i talked about last time uh in the power supply it was like a 2.2k resistor i actually ended up not having to change that because i reduced all the currents in the preamp uh all the extra current and it ended up being that that was correct that value that i initially chose was correct and it was it was correct because i calculated without those currents in mind and then i reduced them a ton and uh, everything worked out well so i'm getting pretty close to all the voltages that i originally designed for in the heater circuit you know one of the things i ran into that's kind of difficult i was doing dc heaters for the well okay so i I rectified the heater supply such that i could use it to power the op amp so i made a dual rail supply to uh, power um, the op amp that controls the riaa filtering but then i also tap off the positive side of that to heat up the new tubes which they don't need a lot of current but they only need their current voltage is 0.7 which is kind of odd 
And um, so one of the things that's kind of difficult with just a transformer that's off the shelf, since I didn't design it and I didn't specify it, and you don't, like if you look at a transformer data sheet for off the shelf stuff, you usually get a voltage and a current and that's it. You don't really get much else. So when you rectify it and apply a load to it, what's it going to be? That's that's not necessarily an easy question to answer. Like, what, no, what why, voltage are you why actually going to get? Why does it change? Is it the inductance, or is it heating, or...? Uh, mainly, it's it's the uh, load current and the resistance of the coil, which the resistance of the coil is not usually given. And uh, it's also, gosh, when you specify a transformer, you can specialize, specify uh, coil... What do they call it? Um, regulation. Even though it's not regulating anything the uh the regulation of a coil in a transformer you can define it as how much of a difference do you see between a loaded a fully loaded coil and an unloaded coil because you know they're going to be different voltages um a higher level of regulation you can get uh it ends up costing a ton more but the difference between those is much tighter uh it's harder to design you have to use better material and stuff like that but since this is an off-the-shelf thing basically my original goal and this is how I had to do it, was I knew it was going to be somewhere between this voltage and that voltage after rectification, and I just needed to adjust resistances to get what I wanted to. So on the bench, I basically just started clipping in resistances, and it was funny because I got to the point where I just had a bin of high-voltage resistances, and frankly, I wasn't even <laughs> looking at their value that much. It was just clip them in until, see, until, it's, see, it worked. until it works. Because I knew they were all high enough that, you know, as you're paralleling, it's not going to, like, short or anything like that. But I ended up getting that uh, all, all worked out. So the heater voltage, I'm getting almost 0.7. I'm getting the, the voltages I want for the, um, for the op-amp supply. I'm getting about 365 volts on the high-voltage supply. Uh, and then, and then I, I actually passed some, uh, some signals through it. And when I was testing on the power supply, I was getting a gain of about 42, but now that I've switched it over to this supply and, and the, you know, some of the voltages are different, I'm actually getting a gain of about a hundred now, which is 42 was already too much. Now a hundred is way too much, but, uh, regardless, you know, that, that was nice. So basically a hundred millivolts comes in, I get what is it 10 One volts volt. 10 volts peak to peak uh oh 10 oh yep yeah you're right yeah 10 10 yeah. volts peak to peak on the output if you know if if i'm cranking it all the way so i mean that's huge the cool you're thing is an ssps effectively yeah although <laughs> my my rails don't go past plus minus 10 i don't think something like that. i don't remember exactly what that what it is it goes way past what i need let's just put it that way uh so that that's uh, the output of my little preamp board is the signals that would get sent to the power tubes that eventually make their way to the speakers. So I just took that signal that goes off the power board and I plugged it into my power amp in on one of my guitar amps and just played directly through that. So I was actually cranking 100 watts out of this thing and uh, it worked out fine, you know, other than the fact that I'm playing through guitar speakers, which are not intended for hi-fi and they don't sound very good for that. Uh I mean, everything was great. One of the cool things is um, the signal-to-noise ratio is through the, through the roof. Uh, I mean, with, with those signals that I'm talking about, I mean, I wasn't even able to really see the noise on my scope. Uh, it's buried in the, the noise floor that my scope has. 
So the signals, I mean, the, the, the preamp's not really even introducing much of its own junk. Characteristics. Yeah, well, noise characteristics. Because, I mean, even even when with the gain cranked all the way 100 times, I, I was seeing less than... Like, if my scope's in the two millivolt range, I'm, I'm seeing one square of jitter, you know, that kind of... Or mm -hmm. less than one square. So it's kind of hard to... With, with the measurement systems I have, it's kind of hard to qualify, but not much is the answer. So, which is... Is that, is that from your board layout or the new tubes are that good? The new tubes are 100% not that good. I guarantee you that. In <laughs> fact, the next thing... Well, okay, so my board layout turned out to be really great. Uh, you know, that's, that just worked out. I'm, I'm happy with that. Uh, this is not like a super intensive circuit anyway, so it's not surprising that it turned out okay. The thing about it is every new tube that I have used so far has been unbelievably microphonic, which really, really sucks. Microphonic as in if you vibrate them, they start to squeal, and they don't squeal at like a a frequency that is acceptable. They squeal it like 6K, you know? Like, it's it's way, <laughs> way, way high. And uh, the thing is, I had this board just sitting on my bench, and I had my guitar cabinet on the floor away from it. Like, not physically connected, and just, just the air moving in between was shaking my bench enough to start them oscillating. And they would they would just run away, and it and you get this like real high pitched squeal, and I could I could you know introduce it by just pounding my fist on the table and starting to get them to shake a little bit. So I'm gonna have to come up with some kind of system to hold these little things, you know, perfectly still. Um, and this is this has happened on multiple products. Like I've 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 had other products that are uh, maybe not products projects. That, that weren't even mine, that, that someone else has a new tube in it, and you just tap it, and you can hear it. It's just like, oh, man, that's a huge flaw in these things because there's, there's a good chance they're going to be in an in a environment that has vibration, you know? And I think that might be just the nature of VFDs because all VFDs I've messed with, if you, like, tap them the right way, they vibrate. You can hear that. Yeah. Well, there's the uh, – I believe it's the uh, – I believe it's actually the heater, which is, is also the cathode in this situation. Uh, it's it's a, you can if you put it under a scope, you could see it. It's this really really tiny wire that must be at an unbelievable tension, you know, or or it's it, maybe it's not under tension. It's just the right length and the right diameter and the right all the characteristics that make it ring at six k. You know, I and I don't know if it's six k. It's just way up there and it's annoying as hell. So I don't know. That's something I'm going to have to fix or find out a way to make it not happen. Maybe I'll have to have the amp away from the speakers as far as possible. I got it. Record that? what that frequency is. Output of the preamp, notch at that. Yeah, like it negative infinity notch right <laughs> yeah, there. <laughs> right there at that frequency. Well, I, and, and, you know, so the thing is also I'm thinking that VintiQ that I designed, I'm thinking about using that as the input to this like making okay. another little box that that kind of looks nice and uh so i i actually could do some notching at that frequency because the thing about it is it it's a it's an interesting feedback loop because it's not necessarily electronic well it's electronic to acoustic to acoustic to vibration and then back to electronic you know so it's like 
Uh, it's a really nasty feedback loop. You can make an op amp with it. <laughs> a really, really slow op amp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I probably won't do that, but I like it. <laughs> so yeah, the next steps on the uh, Mac ramp is now that I've proven that the board functions, I just have to get it in the enclosure and actually have it run off of the power tubes, which I've done that a gazillion times. So I'm, I have no reason to believe that that wouldn't function. So that'll be next. Yep. I'm excited cool. to hear it. Yeah, me too. Uh, I actually built just for fun. I built a pair of DML speakers which are panel speakers that you stick a, a vibration audio exciter on them. Uh, I bought a pair of those. They were like 20 bucks for a pair of the audio exciters and then bought some plywood at Home Depot and just stuck them to plywood. And uh, so I'm going to use those as just some test speakers for right now. How good do those sound? Not very. <laughs> they sound like plywood. <laughs> well, you can actually get them to sound really, really good. Um, I, I was more doing this as just kind of like a cheap way to get some fun speakers. Um, I'm going to, my plan is to rebuild them, but with better material. And in fact, it's funny cause the better material is actually cheaper than the plywood. The, I, I was watching a YouTube video of a guy who, who does these DML speakers and he's found that one of the best materials is acoustic ceiling tiles, which are like four bucks a piece. They're the right size, two foot by four foot, so you don't have to do anything other than drill holes to hang them from the ceiling. And these audio exciter speakers uh, have some really, really sticky 3M tape on them. So you just pull the tape off, stick it to the acoustic tile, and you have a speaker effectively. Uh, uh, that's that's going to be a pretty cool experiment. Yeah. I, when, when you said you were going to buy some of those, I had the idea of, like, what if you had a shaven head and you stuck it on your head? Because they're like... <laughs> There's like a 40 watt version. I don't know what 40 watts of acoustic power being directed right into your skull would be. Well, like. it's mechanical vibration. I mean, it would, uh, I mean, that thing just sit, would sit there and jiggle your skull. I'm sure you would hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I'm sure you would hear that. Yeah. In fact, I remember a while back uh, there was a kid's toothbrush. In fact, I, we talked about this on the podcast. Yeah, that, that, that vibrated your teeth. <laughs> oh, that was Joe Grand, wasn't it? Yeah, Joe Grant hacked one of those. It's a it's a commercial product, and then he hacked it to play its own music. Right, he could upload MP3s to his toothbrush. Yeah, uh, but that's like probably like probably not even an eighth of a watt. Yeah, it's not forty watt toothbrush. Forty watts right in your skull. <laughs> a forty watt toothbrush would just plow right through your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can just imagine you like stick that driver on your head, turn on. Turn on the music and your eyeballs just melt. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, so I, I have been working on my hair for a, a long time, and it is quite long. So I'm not going to shave my head, but I could put a 10-watt exciter on my head and see what it does. <laughs> put it on your forehead. Put it on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll report back if it sucks. <laughs> or hopefully you live. Uh, All right, on to the RFO. So uh, I found a I found a fun uh, article this week. Actually, I find this a little bit more interesting. Uh, Electronics Weekly has an article about a new chip component to get heat out of tight spots without leaking electrons. So I, I saw that title 
And I was like, that sounds like a MEP style title, you know, yeah. without leaking electrons out. Uh, so effectively, this is a, a pretty cool little chip that's made of, uh, I don't remember the material. Aluminum nitride. That's it, aluminum nitride. So it's a SMD style chip that has SMD style pads on it that uh, has really, really excellent thermal properties in terms of conducting heat. It's like five times better than alumina or whatever they say. And, uh, but it, uh, it has really low capacitance and really low leakage. So you can use it with unique and complex shapes on your PCBs to solder down interesting thermal um, paths. So instead so I'm of doing this is so you could jump a trace and they continue your heat sinking area. Yeah, that's right. In fact, one of the okay. example pictures they show is so that you can jump a trace over to a chunk of copper that is connected to your chassis ground somehow uh, or like through a screw or something like that. So, Interesting. yeah, so if you have some kind of like high voltage section that you need to get rid of some heat, you could use something like this. And it doesn't require a whole bunch of extra manufacturing processes because it just comes on a reel and you can use a pick and place to drop it down. So pretty neat. It's a surface. You could say it's a surface mount heat sink almost. Yeah, yeah. Although it it's not dissipating heat. Well, I mean, it is, but it's not much. It right? does dissipate heat. It's just not its primary function. Right, right. So the, the cool thing is you can use it to get cute with how you get rid of heat. Instead of just relying on loads of copper right next to the chip, you can potentially use it to direct and guide your heat where you want it to go using your EDA tool effectively. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought it'd be cool to showcase that. I like the data sheet too on it. I don't think I looked at the data sheet. It's pretty self. It's pretty you know self-explanatory. Would you say it's a good data sheet? I would say it's a good data sheet. <laughs> We're gonna talk about that later. If we haven't said that already. <laughs> I like the performance data. Okay, on this thing, it's on page two. Okay. Um, of its three pages. Oh, of the sheet. three pages, yeah. Yeah. It's um, performance data. So it has shear strength greater than 18 newtons. It's like, oh, it's greater than 18 newtons. Is it 20? Is it 100? Is it 1,000? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then temperature cycling. So they have a negative 55 to 125C 30-minute dwell. Uh, and 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 it's just the report is no visual damage. <laughs> yeah. It could be it could be ruined, but yeah. it has no visual damage. Yeah, like, they just like, test it. You, you know, they test it and they're like, does it look good? Yeah, it looks fine. Yeah, it looks <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, oh, that's interesting. So solderability for using this, it does say greater than ninety five percent coverage, which. So, so what's what's important to note about that? If you were going to use one of these, you would want to specify the right IPC class uh, for inspection on this component or across your entire board, because basically you want to make sure that you get as much coverage as possible. Well, I'm guessing that's how it. I mean, the solder paste is the conductive path to get it into this part. Well, of so course, you need. Yeah greater than 95% coverage to probably hit their thermal performance calculation. Exactly. But if you do, say, class 2 or class 1 um, 
IPC requirements, then you, you know, I think that's 50% pad coverage it w- would that's be unacceptable. Correct. Uh, well, class one is is like, isn't class one garbage? Is it class three that's garbage or class one? I can't remember off the top of my head now. Class three is the best one. Okay, that's right. Yeah, so class one is like McDonald's toy kind of stuff. Uh, so uh, yeah, fifty percent coverage is class two. So they're saying you you would want ninety five percent, which honestly isn't hard to get, and you would probably get that. But in terms of if you were using this on a product, you would want to specify that. I think they they're saying that to cover to make sure that to hit your thermal performance of this part, you need to have ninety five percent greater than ninety five percent of coverage to hit that, which makes sense if you're hanging on by a little sliver um all that heat's got to go into that little sliver no you see what happens is all the heat goes into that sliver and then it heats it up and it reflows it and then and then it cools itself down right (laughs) i have self-healing i have had failed mosfets on my own projects on surface mounts that have failed and then reflowed themselves off the board (laughs) nice like just falling off from Falls being off too and hot. Just put a new one on. Nice. Auto repair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a feature. Cool. All right. So the next article is Server Maker Super Micro to Ditch Made in China Parts on Spy Fears. And so we talked about Super Micro in episode 142 with, of the podcast with Misha and Church. And this is harking back to the supposedly. Uh, implanted hardware parts that were spying on server hardware. Yeah. So, what? What? what so, uh, Super Micro is just completely dropping Made in China altogether. I think they're trying to reduce how many Made in China parts they're using on their boards. Um, they're saying it's because of spy fear, fearing. Like, but is it because of? Is it, is it a security move or is it money? Well, it's probably all their customers saying, like, I won't buy your stuff if any of it comes from China because so, of the Bloomberg article. Because of the Bloomberg article, yeah. Um, or is there something more like... Because people were saying basically the Bloomberg article was a bunch of crap. Um, but is there actually something to that article? Because basically we just... Got, Bloomberg said, no, our facts are right. Um, or, or... Or... Not facts. Um... It's not opinion either. What is it? Uh, our conclusion, I guess, is is true. I mean, even if it was fake news, the uh, it still was enough to you know cause a stir and have you know fear causes people to either spend money or save it, right? So, in this case, they're probably making a call to just make sure that everything is taken care of and that their customers are feeling good about it. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I bet you it's a little bit of everything. It's probably a money reason, and they're spending it as a security move. Yeah. And I bet you that Bloomberg article probably scared some C-level type people who actually make the decision of where they buy their servers from. Right. And they're like, we won't buy from Supermicro because we don't know if this is true or not. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, when we had that that, uh, episode with Misha and Church, I think there was already stuff... Or rumors about Facebook and Apple not buying servers from them for those exact reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Hardware I think there were game. different reasons. Apple, was it Apple? 
yeah i think it was apple not buying servers i think it was because they were changing the firmware on them or something like that well also amazon aws was looking at them and then they mysteriously not well maybe not mysteriously they just suddenly said no we're not going to do this even though they like you know had this big uh push towards uh, investigating and, and looking into using these servers so they're, they're it, i don't know it, it looks like there's something there but yeah it's it's, not, it's, we're not gonna know <laughs> now we're not gonna know um yeah it's interesting that they're gonna move to i wonder how much percentage they can change on their boards because i know you can't buy well i guess you can buy from taiwan there's a well, lot of okay. there's a lot of passive parts made in taiwan but but okay so get down to the kind of the the meat and taters of it what does made in china mean like how much can't be made in china or how much can be made in china in order for it to be called made in china or not right that's true yes it's so, like building you know 49 percent of your truck in mexico and then shipping it over to texas and we clean the last 51 percent yeah, or 99% in Mexico and doing the last, you know, putting the, the uh, license plate on it or whatever. The emblem. And then you're like, we made it here. <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, yeah, if it says made in China parts, does that mean no passives are there or no connectors or what? You yeah, know? that's what I'm warning about. And I bet you that it's probably more about active components, like the parts that do switching and... Like, like data switching and stuff, EPROMs, that kind of stuff. I could see that being it. I, you know, I, I, think, I think I would make the argument that it's probably more, no, assembles, assemblies in, in China. So, like, the parts might come from China, but they are certainly not, like, the whole motherboard is not created there. No, they're saying parts. Like, just full-on parts? Like, what, but, but, okay, so once again, like, does, is the part, like, do they consider the whole motherboard of the server a part? You know, I don't know. Are, yeah. So, because it well, okay. So may, maybe you're right though, because the, when we were talking about it last, we were focusing entirely on the PCB, not the server as a whole. Correct. So maybe it is just parts from the PCB. And I actually, yeah, um, reading a little bit more into the article. It says, U.S. customers and especially government-related clients have asked Supermicro not to supply them with motherboards made in China because of security reasons. See, okay, so that, 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 that would be uh, assemblies then. Motherboards made in China, not motherboards with parts made in China. Yeah, okay, that makes a bit more sense. But the article says parts. Okay. So it could probably be both. Yeah. I, I, think, I think parts to an electrical engineer means something else to parts, you know, for someone writing an article. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, yeah, because I would say most PCB, oh, not PCB, most PC builders, like they build their own computer, they wouldn't say, they would say a motherboard is a part. It's a, yeah, it's a singular part. It has one box for it, right? Yes. Yeah. So you're, you're the, the truth lies in the middle somewhere. Oh, of course, right? Have you ever thought about building a motherboard? Uh, not really. Sorry, I know that's super tangent. <laughs> but but that, that, that comes to mind because, like, you're saying the, the PC guy considers a motherboard a thing. I, I looked into it once just out of curiosity, not that I was going to do it, but, like, what would it take to make a motherboard? Uh, and, like, wh what do you even have to consider? Like, how do you start designing and making a motherboard? 
that's like way beyond me. I have no idea. I, I've repaired them before. Like we placed like service mount parts and capacitors and stuff. But just on, on old boards and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Got to get that old uh, 386 running again, man. <laughs> you got to play Doom, man. It actually was for a uh, a uh, small business that, that their entire POS system was on it. Really? And it, yeah. and it crapped the bed? Yeah. Well, it was starting to get... Uh, What's the term? Uh, unreliable is probably the best term for it. <laughs> unreliable. <laughs> nice. Hey, swap the swap the caps, and um, it ran for another four years before they upgraded the POS system. So nice. Okay. Next topic is an article from Boldport on better data sheets. So this is a really cool article. I thought um, about basically like how data sheets are how manufacturers talk to engineers and what engineers use them for. Um, and there's a couple, like he's got a couple um, examples in here, but I, my favorite thing is like how, like he goes through like the engineering mindset of how we use data sheets, which mm -hmm. I never even thought about this before. Because mm -hmm. um, as engineers, we digest data sheets in two modes, which I like search mode and design mode. So search mode, we're still searching for a component. And so a lot of times we need like, we need this like laundry list of features, right? Yeah. And so we just open up like a hundred data sheets and we're starting just going through them all. Right. We pick like 10 and my next step is then I go to like Mauser or Digikey and see which one's the cheapest. <laughs> <laughs> and then I pick that one and then make sure it will work, right? Yeah. And then design mode is like, okay, we you pick the that holy grail part, right? And then you have to read the whole thing to make sure that it's going to work correctly and you can actually design it into your page. Right, right. And then you have to follow their calculations and their formulas on whatever pages and yeah, you you really start to dig through it. Right. Yeah. So, he's saying in these two different modes, we should have two different data sheets so to speak. Hmm. Um, so in search mode, you should have like a more bullet points and performance requirements, quirks, erratas, that kind of stuff, like the high level stuff that will really impact your decision on this part. And then design mode is kind of like, yeah, let's just have everything, you know, in a searchable format. Yeah. Well, and, and some some manufacturers actually do things similar to that where they have the, the design brief or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, and, and a lot of times you'll get that at the top of a data sheet anyway. Like the first two pages are going to be that. Although you have to, and EV, EV blog goes over this a lot, Dave Jones, like the the kind of the text on the first page, most of the time you can just skip that because it's just marketing crap that half the time is a lie, right? Yes. Or Or um, it's like everything is the most ideal condition. Yeah, ideal condition. Uh, we talked about a MOSFET data sheet that's like that like mm -hmm. how much power how much power you can actually put through it it's not exactly what it says i'm um, right. actually i think he mentions it in this bold part article as well that that mosfet problem um you know one of the things um well okay so he has some suggested alternate reading uh on on one of one of the links in that um article and it it's really great this it's a separate data sheet article that 
basically steps you through how do you read a MOSFET data sheet? And it was fantastic. I, I kind of like skimmed through it and I totally want to read it in, in depth because uh, it was it was basically pick a MOSFET data sheet. Here are the things you need to know. Here are the things to watch out for. Here are the things to look at. Here are the charts. And, uh, and it w- goes step by step. And man, I really, really wish I had that years ago. That would have been awesome to know instead of having to just stumble my way through most of that crap. And in fact, I, I was suggesting like it would be really, really great if you know, TI and Maxim and all these other guys had a here's how to read our data sheet guide you know mm-hmm. like here's here's a guide to all of our op amps and when we have the the symbol like v p h this is what that means you know like and i just i just threw out some random letters there but a lot of times you'll look at the data sheet and it'll just say this this thing and it's a voltage and it says never exceed this and you're like what does that mean you know <laughs> like, like they don't <laughs> never exceed steven yeah, right 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 but. um so i'm looking at this uh, additional documentation that's in here yeah or page my favorite thing is um what is a data sheet and it says it's a bunch of information about claims of a part that can what the part can do yeah claims not yeah. guarantees because then all the data sheets have terms and conditions that basically stay that say data and specifications subject to change without notice. Right. It's like as an engineer, you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you want something to hang your hat on, right? Actually, he, and he goes into a little bit further detail. He says the thing that you can hang your hat on is the absolute maximums. Like those things are just like guaranteed. You violate those, and you'll have you're gonna have a bad day. Yes. Yeah. Um, so one one thing in this bold port article I don't agree with is he wants like fancy web UI UX stuff for data sheets. Okay. And TI has done this. I absolutely do not like it. It might be because of TI's implementation. Like interactive data sheets and things like that? Or with tabs and stuff. And I'm like, man, just give me a like text readable pdf still that can control f yeah well i could see that being useful for processors crap not see that it is useful for processors when you can do all that stuff but yeah if Mm -hmm. i'm looking at an op amp that is 12 pages or something like that i don't i don't want it to be all broken down into five different categories (laughs) yeah yeah cool you know another thing uh that he mentions that i absolutely agree with is the um some manufacturers still have their data sheets behind a registration wall or something like that. It's like, yeah, don't if you're, that. if your parts for sale, let me look at it. You know, let me look at the data sheet, you know, yes, that's um, super annoying. That's a really great way to make me not use your part. Yes. I, I do agree. Um, manufacturers should start using revision control. That is easier, easy to find out if your data sheet is the current version. Yeah. Um, and not, don't make it like, the name of the file it needs to be on the pdf or whatever it needs to be in the document itself yeah preferably at the bottom of every page or wherever you're uh, on every page somewhere somewhere yeah yeah Um, and they do i do agree with him is is place documents in a permanent location always don't change it ti is really bad at that I I got a good one here uh, because I run into this on occasion, actually more than I wish. 
Um, if you have a product that's really old or a, a data sheet that's really old, just do everyone a favor and create a new data sheet. Don't just sit there and photocopy your old data sheet and then slap your logo up at the top. Like literally spend the four or five hours or even a week making a nice data sheet for your old product. If it's, if I can buy it brand new, there should be a new data sheet for it. And if you do photocopy your data sheet, holy crap, do it straight. Like I hate when I open a data oh, it's sheet and it's sideways or like angled. It's like, really? This that is how much you care about fuck. your product. You know, <laughs> like take a little bit of pride in your data sheet. There's also the, um, when you talk about updating stuff, like you see this a lot right now with uh, Atmel and Microchip, is you download a, a data sheet and like some of the really old Atmel products, you can definitely tell they just like printed out the Atmel data sheet and then like post-it noted Microchip on top of the logo <laughs> and then scan them all back in. Um, yeah. And the newer ones, it really depends on what product it is um, from this. Sometimes they just like put a microchip cover letter on the PDF and then the next page just says Atmel. Right, um, yeah. And some of them, like, I think they're newer stuff. It says microchip from the get-go. But yeah, it's always, it's interesting. Well, also, why are we scanning stuff? Now, like, <laughs> I mean, what, what, what do we need to scan stuff for anymore? I don't How know. How it exists? You know, another one that, it's not the end of the world, but it, but it shows up as it's kind of annoying is when you search for a transistor, like you just want a single transistor and it just ends up being a single page from a manufacturer. That's not the manufacturer you're at. And it has like a list of like 50 transistors and maybe like one or two characteristics about them. It's like, okay, great. Thanks. You know, yep. it's just a jelly bean transistor. I get it, but it's also like, man, I was hoping to get a data sheet for that transistor, not just the whole family. Yeah, I would say data sheets definitely need um, improvement, but I'm not sold on the making it like a UX thing in a browser. Sure. But everything else I kind of agree with is, with this stuff. Yeah. It's a good read. Go and check it out. We'll post the link up in the show notes if you mm -hmm. want to check it out. And uh, and also, yeah, read the uh, read also the other article about how to read a MOSFET data sheet. That one's good. I would too. say for beginning engineers, this is a really valuable resource. Yeah, it'll start you getting crusty. <laughs> right away. Yeah, from the get-go. <laughs> this should be mandatory reading for freshmen in college. <laughs> Half the people would drop out immediately. Uh, You'd be like, this is going to be my life after I graduate, reading these? Yep. Yes. Yep. Good luck. <laughs> Great. Cool. Got anything else, Steven? Nah, I think I'm good. Well, let's see if we can nail the outro then. Okay. Well, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or you can do the intro better than I can, tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. 
That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.